0: Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Well-Versed
1: podcast. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this particular interview. We're interviewing two ladies. <clears throat> I only met them recently, but they touched me so deeply. You're going to hear from Chloe Cole. She's a young woman who um, got swept up in the issue of transgenderism and then has tried to move back out of that. I'll let her describe the words in the process, but detransitioning is what I understand that to be. And then an attorney, a brilliant attorney, Vernonette Broyles. These ladies are two heroes to me. Chloe Cole is only 19 years of age. I could not believe how articulate her command of the language. I suspect she must have a very high IQ, but I, I, I felt several responses. One, deep admiration for her as I heard her speak recently. And my second response was just deep anger of what's been done to her. I I haven't ever stopped and done this ever on the World Prayer Network, Paul. But I'm going to ask our tech guy, Alan Ingram, who you know because he occasionally leads worship. Alan, bring your screen on. And when we were talking a little bit ago, and I told you I was going to have Chloe Cole on. You didn't recognize the name right at first. And you said, oh, Chloe Cole, tell me what you told me a few moments ago when you found out we were going to be interviewing her certainly uh chloe first of all it's an honor to to, to meet you i watched your interview with uh, dr peterson and i was sharing with uh, dr. Jordan, Garlo peterson, that, folks. uh jordan peterson yeah sorry <clears throat> and i just shared with um with uh dr garla that i my heart was broken it, it truly was and i just thank you for your courage and it's truly an honor to have you on thank you, thank
2: you guys for having me
1: before we went on the air, he said it much stronger than that. He toned it down right now. But he was ecstatic when he found out we were having you on. And I am so honored as well. So I'm going to introduce, uh, I'm going to use Bernadette Broyles as the attorney right now. Let her introduce herself and introduce Chloe. And folks, I want to encourage you to call your friends and have them get on the World Prayer Network call right now. You know how to the likes, you know how to do that uh, in terms of technology to spread the word. But even get on the phones and call some people and say, you need to get on here right now. There's some parents, particularly there's some teenagers that need to hear this badly. And I urge you, you're not going to regret. You get the phones right now and they get on this call. They're going to praise God for the message you're about to hear. So Chloe Cole and Bernadette Royals are so honored to have you. Bernadette, I'll just turn it right to you.
0: Thank you, Jim. You are such a dear, and um, it is such a pleasure to be here with a what has become a dear friend of mine, a little sister, uh, Chloe. So as you know, my name is Bernadette Broyles. I am the president and general counsel of a nonprofit public interest law firm called the Child and the Parental Rights Campaign. We, the Lord moved upon me to establish this um, law firm, a little over four years ago for one single reason, which was to fight and oppose in the courts of of law and the courts of public opinion, what is clearly child abuse called transgender ideology, uh, transitioning of children's bodies to sterilization and other things. And so that is what we do full time. And in the course of that work, I've come to meet Chloe. I would also say for those who are watching this, Not only get parents and kids on here, call pastors, get faith leaders to to, you know record this or however you can legally uh, reproduce it. Have them watch this pod, this uh, this broadcast.
1: I mean, it's breaking right now. They can go to www.worldprayernetwork.org and this will be available. You copy it and take it, but anywhere you can. So worldprayernetwork.org. It'll be available uh, soon after this is aired. A few moments. Copy the link and spread it everywhere you can. Go ahead, Bernadette.
0: Right, because ultimately this is a wake-up call to the church and to the people of God and to all who care about children and young people and our and our future, quite frankly. So Chloe, I wanna go to you. Gosh, you and I met several years ago and I can't even remember, was it Florida or one of the cases we we're working on? Do you recall? It might've been Florida, yeah. Okay, yeah, I think we're. I think we were escorted out by the police. In, in that particular one, right? <laughs> right. So, but um, you were testifying there in order to uh, to get a regulation to protect children from these treatments. But tell, tell us what caused you to begin to believe, like, actually believe you were a boy several years ago? Well,
2: I mean, there were several factors in my life that were making me have some distress around my birth sex. Um, I'd always kind of been a tomboy, which is pretty—it's pretty normal way to for girls to grow up. Um, but I also had an early puberty, which was concurrent with some body image issues. I always felt like I always had another woman to compare myself to, especially because I grew up in an age that was very oriented towards media. I grew up in a very hypersexualized environment with my peers and with what I with what I was seeing online. And I just, there were times when I felt like I never would be pretty or feminine enough as a woman. And I thought that the experience of being a woman was going to be scary. I always heard about the things that made it unpleasant or painful or inconvenient. And I feel like not a whole lot of people really emphasize to me just how meaningful, how beautiful all of those things really are, regardless of how painful it is. And the fact that it's just not something that I could or should run away from, but I never really thought that I was a boy until I actually learned about transgenderism through online communities that were kind of, at first they were based around my own personal interests, so that things like digital illustration or, or or artwork or shows or games that I liked watching or playing. Um, a lot of the users within these communities were people who were identified with or allied with the transgender community. And I, upon, upon learning about this, it was just something that brought a lot of my, a great deal of my interest because it was just such a new idea to me. And just the way that they talked about these things, all these, all these new phrases and ideas that you can use to describe your identity. And I mean, I was at an age where I was already trying to expand and figure out what my role in the world would be. And it kind of gave me uh, this explanation for why I was different. Because I didn't always feel like I fit in with the girls or the women around me. Maybe that meant that I wasn't actually a woman. Mm.
0: So where did it start? Was it, did you begin to, as they say, socially transition first before you moved into medical treatments?
2: Yeah, I started to socially transition um, very slowly over time. I wanted to gradually ease myself into it and hopefully become more convincing to my parents and the people around me before coming out to them. Um, so very slowly over time, I started cutting my hair shorter and shorter. Um, I started going to the boys' section in stores without my mom and dad knowing and buying more, more boys' clothing. And I started calling myself a boy and by a boy name. Um, I think first to people online, and then some people at school, and eventually I would tell people within my own grade level about it. Which many of them actually responded. Many of those friends and peers within my my grade level actually responded quite negatively to it. They pushed back on it quite a bit. Um, but and it was it was in a way that I feel like was very. It was very mean. It was kind of used as a means of of picking on me, if anything. And it wasn't really out of any real concern. Just, I don't really blame those kids. Because, I mean, we're all kind of in middle school at the time. Which is kind of how the environment of middle school socialization is. And I don't really think that they knew any better. But in a way, it pushed me further into it. Because it's like, well, I mean, it's not like something that... I, I thought at the time was something that I could choose. And... It made me feel like I wanted to prove the people around me wrong. And it kind of put this pressure on me to uh, not to hide it from my mom and dad. I felt like they deserved to know, but I was very afraid of how they might react to it. Mm. So I waited a little bit longer to tell my family about it. When I did, I wrote them a letter. And how old they, were
0: you this time, Chloe? How old were you?
2: I was 12. Um, it was about a month before my my 13th birthday. And a few months before I went into my eighth grade year when I wrote this letter to them. And they actually were, to my surprise, very, very pleasant. They wanted to be, my mom and dad wanted to be, they wanted to show their support to me and they wanted to help me feel comfortable with these feelings, but they were really not so informed about this at the time. They didn't really know what to do about this. And so they didn't really feel equipped as my parents to help raise me through these these feelings and these hardships that I was having.
0: So did you, at some point, no, let me ask you this. How common is it from your travels and you're talking to many others and, and your research, how common is it is that it, around the age of puberty that girls will begin to experience distress with their body and, and with their sex?
2: I mean, it's almost an inevitability once a young woman goes into puberty that she's going to experience some form of discomfort with her body. And I think that even goes for most males as well. It's Mm. a normal feeling, frankly. Right. And it's normal to be afraid of the responsibilities that come with being an adult man or an adult woman.
0: So were you encouraged to take any steps to begin to medically change your body? Um... Well, before I came out to my mom and dad, I wasn't like
2: seeing a therapist or anything. Um, but I was very I was browsing in these online communities where they talked a lot about this, about their own experiences, and the answer always seemed to lead to medicalization. It was always talked about as if it were an innate medical disorder. Mm. And I, I believe that I had a birth defect, basically. And that in order to live
0: happily and healthily, I had to address it using using physical interventions. Let me pause you there. So what you're basically saying is that the professionals around you were treated, treating your sex, your womanhood, as if it was a disorder.
2: So when I went to therapy, um, once they got the ball rolling and started talking to my parents, about maybe getting me on these these treatments and extending just beyond socially transitioning, um, it was I wouldn't I wouldn't really say that they were that they were pushing me into it so much as they were just letting me basically do as I pleased. Um, and they weren't questioning these feelings. They weren't pushing back on these feelings or trying to explore any further. They just accepted it as facts. And when they talked to my mom and dad, they told them that there was no other choice, that this was my identity, that this wasn't a choice. That had to be done now, because they said that I would be at risk of suicide, basically.
0: Were you actually suicidal at the time?
2: No, far from it. I mean, I was in a great deal of distress at the time. Um, All my friends in school had went on to the next grade level. They were all in high school. And my friends within my own grade level were not very kind to me. Um, I was experiencing a great deal of bullying and sort of being a wallflower and not really feeling like I had had any real friends around me or anybody to confide in around me. And I was very lonely during that school year. and I mean, once I started going to therapy, I thought that these issues in my social life were going to be addressed, um, and that I was going to get better, but I wasn't. And I started feeling more and more hopeless. So naturally I started to feel more distress around my sex, around my body and around my trench and, in general. And I thought that because I was being bullied at school, that the answer would just be, to be, become outwardly more masculine looking so that I would be accepted as the opposite sex and hopefully make more more friends that way um but I never was suicidal before I started being medicalist
0: interesting that's really I wanted to get better yeah that's 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 a really interesting thing so if I can just interject they tell they tell parents and not just yours right Chloe they tell parents all around the country and these are the professionals that if they don't go along with these treatments their child is going to commit suicide but it's certainly in your case um and it's been many that others that i've heard the suicidal thinking doesn't start until you, after you, you start the treatments is that is that how it was
2: yeah and regardless giving in to these children's feelings just giving them what they want
0: and never saying no is not the way to address it right So what were the, let's, let's keep moving forward here. What exactly were the treatments that you, your body was subjected to? So they
2: started with a course of Lupron, um, about three to four shots over, maybe a little over a year. What is Lupron? So Lupron in this case is used as a puberty suppressant because it basically blocks communication between, um, the ovaries or in males, testicles, and the brain. And it stops hormonal production entirely. So um, I was about four years in the puberty by this point. So I basically went into a menopausal state. For I was on, I was on the Lubron alone for about, um, I think, between a month to three months. And during that point in time, as the hormones cleared out of my body, um, I had a very heavy period. And then after that, my menses stopped and I went into, I started experiencing menopausal symptoms like um, hot flashes, um, itching, tingling, burning sensations. It was very physically uncomfortable. And I also became very lethargic, um, very apathetic. And this is at the age of
0: what now, 13, was it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was 13, about 13 and a half. So Mm -hmm. about halfway through my eighth grade school year and I was experiencing basically was a chemically induced menopause Um, and after that they put me on the testosterone alongside it um, which compared to that it felt great and I was I had this foolish belief that it was really going to make me into a boy that it was going to bring me closer to my desired and innate identity as a boy and then eventually a man and that I would be happy and whole and I was excited looking, I was excited for the, um, for the physical changes to come from it, the masculinizing changes to my, my body and my face and
0: my voice. So, so Jim, I just want to fill in some things here. Puberty, as I've learned from the many doctors that I've, we've, I've talked to, and I know that Chloe knows this as well, puberty is an extremely important developmental milestone for young people to go through in order to be healthy adults, including the development of the brain. There's a, there's certain parts of the brain that don't fully develop without the your sex hormones influencing your brain. So what, what was done to Chloe interfered with her healthy, normal, physical, as well as mental development. Okay, just for, for the audience to understand what was being done to her. So then Chloe, okay, so then the testosterone comes, and those were extremely, extremely high doses of testosterone, which is what they typically do, right? Yes. Um, and for a while, you you actually were really quite into this, weren't you? I mean, you were really quite euphoric about the, uh, how you were feeling. Is that right? Yeah, and, and how about
2: how- Yeah, the- I was-, I was- I mean, I was ecstatic. I wouldn't call it happiness because there was no real fulfillment from it. From it. But in the moments, in those initial few months, to that first year... um.
1: Uh, come, come on in here with me.
2: Sorry. Um, I mean, in those initial few months to that first year or so, I mean, I really was in what you could call a honeymoon a honeymoon phase again.
0: Alright, All right, so now th- th- tell us about the, the last most drastic um, alteration you, that was made to your body. So eventually I started to,
2: as I went to high school, I had my name changed in the files, I actually started to look like any other boy my age, and I was accepted as a boy. And most people didn't know that I actually was a girl. Um, and for a while, I was, I found satisfaction with that and all the changes that came with it and adapting into my my social life and this new identity. Um, but I started to feel as though that wasn't enough. Um, eventually, like, my face and body were, were fairly masculinized and that gratification of these changes, the validation was gone. And I would still I would take off my my binder every day, which was um it was a device that I wore to basically compress my breast and make my my chest look flat and more masculine um after after changing out every day um after coming home taking <clears throat> taking a shower um after school I I looked out and I'd see my body, these very this very feminine part of my body was still there. And it made me feel so dissociated from myself. And it was just this stark reminder that no matter what what I did to myself, nothing could actually change me into a boy. And that was horrifying. And I wanted to run away from that feeling. And I wanted to look just like any other boy my age. I had this fantasy about one day being able to just have my shirt off while, while swimming or working out or just hanging out and looking like any other boy, just being like any other boy and nobody ever knowing. And so I started to go through consultations for a double mastectomy to remove my breasts. And I underwent the surgery at just 15 years old when I was the summer, just right after my sophomore year of high school.
0: Wow. So... Let's talk about the promise of these treatments was that it was gonna make you feel better and, yes. and, and be more masculine. But what is the truth about the impacts that these treatments have had on your body? What have been, what have been the impacts? What do you still deal with?
2: I mean, psych- psychologically, of course, it destroyed me. It dissociated me from my real identity and as, as a girl, as a woman, and it felt like I was putting on a mask every day, and all the stress of that, and the psychological, the psychological stress that came with being on high doses of testosterone, was horrific. And of course, I, the human body is not meant to sustain, not going through a natural developmental process of puberty. It's not supposed to be on cross-sex hormones for years at a time. And it's certainly not meant to withstand these experimental surgeries. And I've had complications from all three of the major treatments that I was on. um, Because of the puberty blockers and probably in combination with the testosterone, I'm experiencing joint pains today. Which started to come years after I stopped taking the testosterone, after I stopped the... uh, the blockers. And I, about a year or so on on the testosterone, I started having issues with my urinary tracts. Um, I started getting UTIs and UTI-like symptoms, um, about every other month. And it was to the point that it was, I started having like blood and blood clots and tissue appearing in my urine, which was terrifying, frankly. Um, and since I've gone off of it, I've been having issues with my reproductive and, and sexual function. Um, I'm having irregular periods right now. I don't know if I'm going to be able to conceive or have children of my own safely, what the risk of birth defects will be, or any, any health issues for me while I'm pregnant or while I'm giving birth. Um, and the surgery, I thought I was feeling fairly well from. Um, until about two years post-op, and the skin grafts that they used as part of it, that they took of my of my areolas, have become open wounds. And because of that, I have to wear bandages on my, my chest every day. I, I could live without breasts. I could live without the shape of them. And I know I used to have this guilt over not being able to breastfeed my future children um, but now I understand that's not always an option for children and I still have formula. I could always use donor milk, but it's like these, these wounds that won't heal. Mm. They mm. just, they chase me.
0: Wow. So let's, let's turn the corner a little bit because th- you know, and I know that there are, there are many, there are many, right? Uh, that are experiencing what you're talking about. But you you found something that has really helped you and that is your faith. So can you share just a little bit what your faith in God, how that has, that has at least begun to heal some of the inner wounds? It's,
2: I mean, I grew up in a, home that was pretty much agnostic. My mom and dad were were raised up in faith, but I wasn't really raised going to church after about the age of four or five. And I felt like I was scrambling to find my identity, to find my purpose in the world for for years, throughout my adolescence. Um I was struggling to find something to to believe in, to have convictions. And it wasn't until I started going on this this journey after I detransitioned. once I started speaking out about what happened to me and connecting with these other men and women who've been infected, um, their families, and speaking to individuals and these institutions and at churches all across the U.S. that I came to faith. And it's given me a solid identity. I understand now that I am, and I always will be, a woman. But that's a beautiful thing. And just how important it is to defend
0: family and innocence. Mm, innocence. Wow. That's a strong word. So let's talk a little bit about, about then, churches and the fundamental question of why should they care? Why should this matter to them? But I'm gonna I'm gonna back you up just a little bit. Tell us a little bit what the what the your teachers and the education system, the the, the public school, how they affirmed and endorsed this mental confusion that you were having.
2: So for the most part, the education system and my teachers in my school were pretty uninvolved in this. Um when I was in 8th grade and I started going through the medical interventions, um, I mean, it was very obvious to anybody around me that something was wrong as I was going through these physical changes and all of a sudden my face and and features and voice were masculinizing. But nobody really knew what was going on and nobody really questioned it at all. Like, they either didn't care or they were afraid. Okay. And once I went into my high school year, um, I already had my name changed in the school files about probably a week before I started, um, my, my freshman year. And there really was no questioning of it. Um, and by the time, by that point in time, once I went into into that school year, um, I looked pretty much like any, any other boy my age. So none of them really knew, but Um, either way, they, since I live in California, they, these teachers would have been forced to go along with it. I mean, if they pushed back against it, if they expressed any concerns, they could have lost their job for being transphobic.
0: So Chloe, I'm hearing you say that the medical professionals were telling you that this is what you needed to do in order to deal with this birth defect called your female sex. And the medical professionals were then telling your parents who loved you, that they had to go along with this so, so that you would allegedly commit suicide. And none of your teachers and no one in school was pushing back or questioning the truth of of, of any of this. So basically no one in your world is helping you to resist this lie is that about right yes okay and many of them weren't really equipped to and how how much how often how much is this happening with other confused young girls like yourself around this country right now
2: i mean as i've gone out and spoken to all these communities i found that it's in every single one of them it's in every single
0: part of the U.S. And, and these the places where we are least expected. And is it just kids that don't go to church? Or are our kids that actually that are, are going to youth groups and are going to churches around the country being sucked into this lie that they have been born in the wrong body as well?
2: A lot of it is children who haven't really grown up in faith or at least with a with a strong sense of it. But it's also something that is capturing our own churches and our own youth groups. I've gone to these these hearings, these legislative hearings, where pastors will come and defend these treatments and use for children. They'll defend these kids being ripped away from their parents, from their parents' rights, being disrespected, from them not being allowed to be fully informed on how their children are doing, or what
0: is the best course of action to uh, to take care of them through this. So you you know that there are schools all across this nation that are violating parents' rights and transitioning kids behind their backs, right? And you're yes. saying that there are there are actually some pastors in this country that are defending that. So what is your what is your message to to pastors, to leaders within the church, about what is attacking our young people this lie attacking our young people and separating dividing parents from their children what's your message to them my message to these to these religious leaders
2: is that this is something that we we cannot ignore We cannot feel afraid to tackle this issue because whether you realize it or not, at least one person in your community, at least one family is being affected by this. And I feel like this is a consequence of much of my generation growing up in an age where faith and family and having a real identity in your community is something that is no longer... Valued anymore. And we need it to be the adults. We need to instill those values and connect with them.
0: Mm. You say so much that's so powerful, Chloe. Let me let me see if I can stand on your shoulders and, and add a few things. So how I I express it, Jim, is that is for, for any pastors or leaders that are watching here. What Chloe has described is, is devastating. It's as if there has been a decree of death and devastation that has been issued against our young people. And it's spewing out through the internet, through social media, through books, through the public libraries, the pornographic books that they are being exposed to of of twosomes and threesomes and, and every possible type of sexuality, and it's just, pouring out on our kids. And our kids' mental health is in a free fall. In fact, it is the true pandemic of how just devastated our kids' mental health is. And I believe in large part is because they're being exposed to things that their minds, their souls, their spirits are never supposed to be exposed to. Their innocence is being torn apart just as is being violated, just as Chloe described. And it's beyond even the things that she's described and so when you begin to destroy the next generation and you enter, you put a wedge between parents and their children, you are now destroying the nuclear family. And who's gonna step in then when the nuclear family is destroyed? The state, the government. So you're, we're talking about substituting the adults that God instituted that god gave to children to love them to nurture them to, to teach them to train them up in the ways that they should go and to protect them and then substituting them for state sponsored caretakers who don't necessarily have their best at heart and who are who will who will introduce them to all kinds of different ideologies including transgender ideology And here's the final thing about it that Chloe perhaps didn't touch on is the censorship. Now you have government entities and and social entities essentially forcing us to adopt this ideology by our language, pronoun uses, by our opening our bathrooms, women's bathrooms to men, opening our girls' sports to male athletes that unfairly are beating them in their own sport. No society that ignores basic biological reality and derogates objective truth to subjective ideology can possibly survive for long. And no society that destroys its basic cell, that is the nuclear family, can possibly survive that long. And this is why both Chloe and I say to the church, to ministers, to leaders, wake up. That is the message of the hour. Wake up. Jesus gave a parable in which he said that while they were sleeping, an enemy came and sowed tares in the same field with the wheat. That's what's happening. While we have been sleeping an enemy enemy has come and sowed into the souls and the minds of our children the tears of this lie that Are you sure you're born in the right body? Are you sure that God said do not eat of that of that tree? And it is that essential seed of doubt that is sowing tears in our kids and in the in the fields of our of our families and of our communities and of our nation, and it is choking the the. the the plants and the life of our children and frankly of our families and of our nation. This is why you must wake up. And if we we don't speak out now and speak what is the biblical truth? What is the truth? How do I truthfully minister to, to young people that are gender confused? How do I assist families that are dealing with children that are having confusion? And how do I speak out in my community for my people? And for the truth, we will lose the legal right and ability to do so. Mark my words. So Jim, I would love to be able to share a resource that Child and Parental Rights Campaign has created specifically for
1: churches. By all means.
0: And if you'd like to to share that graphic, we have, because our, our law firm, we have brought federal lawsuits around the country for school districts that are violating parental rights. And have worked with wonderful young people like Chloe. We realize that churches needed resources to be able to understand this phenomenon that is so mind-bending and mind-boggling. To understand what's happening in schools and indoctrination, to understand the medical facts and not fiction, and then to have the tools of knowing how to respond. How do you protect your church legally? How do you? Uh, how do you minister to a gender-confused young person that has come into your midst, your youth group? How do you stand with parents who are devastated because their child now believes this lie? And then the resource obviously has uh, has much for the congregants, your, your your parents within your church. And then we even have a section that speaks directly to the young people. How do you guard your own hearts from lies and and to to know the truth and be able to speak for the truth in your own world, so we want to make this this resource, the child, excuse me, the church transgender response guide. We have mainly making it available to to ministers, to pastors, to congregants, and this QR code. If you was want to put your phone on that, we'll show you how to be able to order this. Or there is the website there that you can get on and order this. And um, we'd love to hear from you in any way that we can be of, of assistance to you. We'd love to come and talk to your church about how do you deal with this? Again, I believe it's a nation-destroying phenomenon. And we, the people of God, we have the weapons in our hands, which is truth, to protect our children and to protect our future generations in our nation. So I want to thank you, Jim, for being able to share about that.